and I'm delighted to say that we've got a guest speaker all the way from Eastbourne, uh, and so let's have a warm welcome for Andrew Wilson. Morning. Jeff's very dry, isn't he? So you can't tell whether he's joking when he thinks Eastbourne's a long way away. I don't think Jeff's ever been there, actually, but it's not that far. Um, it's nice to be here. I've met quite a lot of you before, um, if you've been to the church for a while. Um, I've met some of you a long time before that, which is mostly this group over here. I'm good friends of Charlotte and Jamie's, and we've known each other for upwards of sort of 20 years, some of us in the room over here. And then some of you have never been in this church before because you're friends of someone else who's getting baptized and we've never met, but it's nice to meet you anyway. Um, be nice to talk later and so on if you're around. I just have one, one person I hadn't seen for a long time who just came up to me and said, there's two things I always remember about you. You taught me the word denouement and Anne Whittacombe swore at you when you were at university. And they're both true, apparently. Well, they are. The the Anne Whittacombe story is true. I could tell you that story if I wasn't sensitive about it being recorded. And some of you, I know, are a little bit sensitive to swearing. So I decided I wouldn't tell the whole anecdote. But it's quite a good one. If you want to catch me later and find out why Anne Whittacombe swore at me, you might be amused. Um, If you don't know how Anne Whittacombe is, that will not make any sense. But that's okay. I've got the, um, the, I suppose, the privileged responsibility joy of telling you for about 20 minutes or so what's about to happen, what baptism is and why we do it and why we do it like this. And some of you, that will be old hat, you've, you've been lots of times to places like this, but an awful lot of people in the UK today don't really know what baptism is, or at least not as we practice it here, and not as I would understand it, and probably some of you might even have been surprised to have walked in and seen that um, sort of meaty construction that it is, and think, what is this strange thing? Um, and I, some of you might, uh, the word baptism might conjure up the Godfather. I don't know whether that would be realistic. You know, well, you basically think a, a baptism is a moment where you bring in a very small child and somebody speaks in Latin and asks the parents if they renounce the devil. Meanwhile, they get their friends to go and shoot people. If, that's, if you've seen The Godfather. If you haven't, again, that won't make any sense to you either. But Chris Moyles, I remember, on Radio 1 a couple of years ago, I think maybe three years ago, uh, just did this sort of... It was the, I think it was the Sunday of... It was it Sunday or maybe the Monday after Pentecost Sunday he did it. So somewhere in May. And he had seen a baptism taking place in a church like this but larger in Peterborough. And he'd watched it and he was so amazed by what it was. He just had no category for it. And he was just, you know, as Chris Morales does, he just goes off on these rants for sort of 15 minutes. And people thinking, play a song, play a song. But he wasn't doing it. And he was just like, somebody had said something about God. And he went, speaking of God, and then launched off into this huge kind of quite impressed to raid about what he'd seen and basically it was, it was amazing he said this church they were all going oh happy day and they were they were baptizing people in a big pit of water it, it was just amazing and weird and I and I remember hearing him thinking yeah for an awful lot of people this is a very strange practice it's not what we assume happens and so what I want to try and do is explain it and explain what it means explain the symbolism I was preaching at a wedding yesterday and thinking, even weddings, they're just full of symbols and language that if you don't know what you're looking for, might not make a lot of sense. And so there's a lot of people who don't understand what baptism is and a lot of people who don't really quite understand what the Christian story is anyway. So the idea that the two reflect each other is a very strange one. So I want to try and explain what baptism is, what it does and how it dramatizes and acts out, if you like, the whole Christian story, which it does. 
That's what's going to happen. It, it's not just a, this is a lovely little moment, and you know, to be honest, we could put some sprinkled water over you. We could do the ice bucket challenge. That would work. We could pour water over you with a jug. We could, I don't know, throw things in your face, or we could put you in a pit. The reason why we do it like this is because it's an enactment of the whole Christian message. And I want to try and explain why that's true. So the way most people see it, um, that life has a very obvious cycle, and everyone knows what it is. Right? Existence, if you like, on earth has a very simple cycle. You have life, and then you have death. And then when you die, you go back in, as you know, Mufasa explains in The Lion King, and you go back into the ground, and you fertilize the ground. It all becomes part of this big circle. You live, you die, and then the dead you effectively provides nutrients for living beings to continue. And life, death, life, death. You know, obvious circle. Um, and that's true for everybody. It's true for centipedes, it's true for lions and puffins, and it's true for potatoes and trees. And kind of true for you. So there's life and then death. Some of those creatures live for a day. Some of those creatures live for many, many thousands, well, hundreds or even thousands of years in the case of some trees. But the cycle is always the same. Everything on earth, life, death. That's the cycle. We all know that. And for humans, the cycle is the same, but with a little twist at the end. So you have for the potato or the tree or the puffin or the lion or the centipede, life and death for humans because we understand that there's something very tragic and otherworldly and heart-wrenching about death. We say, no, the cycle for us is life, death, burial. And we deliberately bury people, which other species don't really do. I'm told elephants have a way of mourning like that, but most creatures don't, um, and obviously plants don't. And so that we have this slightly, you wouldn't think, and they have this slightly unique way of, of processing death in, in that we realize its severity and its strangeness and its otherness. And so we have this a period of life, period of death, and then we always bury people at the end. You don't walk through, you walk through town and you find leaves lying on the ground, there's nothing strange about it. You drive along the road and you see a badger dead on the side of the road. It's slightly unpleasant, but you don't, there's nothing strange about it. You don't think, must stop the car, there's a dead badger. I, maybe you do. I, I, I'm not one of those people. But, if, but you don't see dead people left on the side of roads. And if you did, you'd immediately call somebody and we would enact the right processes and rituals in our society to bury people because we think it matters that we if you like, honor the life of somebody and also perform this little ritual that all societies do in different ways to say this person was alive and now they're dead and something serious and significant and tragic has taken place and we're going to honor that in a ritualized way and whether we use burial or cremation. And that's how human beings do it. We have you know, friendships and family connections and hopes and dreams and purposes and nearly two of those people die every second. You know, just like once every two seconds... Somebody else is dying around the world. And I know you're really glad you came now, aren't you? You think, wow, I thought we were, oh, happy day. No, it's a death, death, death. But actually, it's important to understand for the sake of what baptism is. So nearly two people are buried or cremated every second. It's a strange idea. It's true. And that cycle has always been there. And what we do as people, we get very good at pretending it's not real. Um, and pretending that it isn't the real cycle of life, um, so we escape the reality. And so we talk about people, for instance, we, we talk a fireman who goes in and saves somebody out of a burning building, we talk as having saved lives. And actually, no offense to the fireman, my father-in-law's a fireman, I love firemen, think heroic people, but actually all they're really doing is postponing deaths. They're not actually saving lives, they're just lengthening lives in a sense. There's actually no, nothing that can save a life in that sense. And uh, we avoid, we, another way we cope with it is we, so we think about life. Lives have been saved, it's wonderful. But we think, well, 
It's a morbid thought, but actually they haven't really. Uh, They've just been lengthened slightly, um, and who knows how long. And then we also escape escape the reality of death, I suppose, a little bit by uh, not really talking about it, and we avoid suffering in every way we can. We take all the painkillers we can, understandably, I do too, um, and we live lives as if to stave off any kind of suffering until it finally does catch up with us, at which point we often get very angry and show by our reaction that we are not that aware of the daily reality of death we're surrounded with all the time. And we might cope with it by escapism or fantasy or therapy or just shutting our ears or whatever. But actually we know that that cycle, life, death, burial, is unchangeable and all-pervasive. It's everywhere. So life, death, burial. That is the shape of existence as seen by almost everybody in the world today. Right? Some people believe that the non-physical part of the person lives on. Right? You, the doctrine of reincarnation is like this. So, you know, life, death, burial. Some people say, well, that, that's what's happened to the person as a whole. Life, death, burial. But some of us then believe that there is a, a, a non-material bit of the person that has a, sub, a subsequent existence. They go and do something else. So Hindus do that with the doctrine of reincarnation. And Muslims do that with the doctrine of paradise, effectively. So the, they don't believe that the person as a whole has any other future than being buried. But they do believe that a bit of the person might escape the physical bit and have another kind of existence, either in paradise or in the earth again reincarnated. So some people believe the non-physical bit of the person lives on, and some people don't. Buddhists don't and atheists don't. But generally speaking, you'll find all worldviews will have that shape, life, death, burial, and then for some of them, the non-physical bit of the person may escape, and others it won't. But the person as a whole is dead and buried, and everybody knows that. Except Christians. Christians are completely different. The shape of a Christian belief about what happens to a person is life, death, burial, resurrection. And the reason that's true is because that's what Christians believe happened to Jesus. Life, death, burial, resurrection. And Christians, Christ people, people like Jesus, I suppose, we would say, no, the way in which the cycle of life goes has been totally transformed by what's happened to Jesus. And so the fact that he lived, died, was buried, and then was raised again to life indicates that all of those who are in him will have the same experience. So in life, death, burial, during which, and actually there's quite a long period of waiting. In Jesus' case, it was three days and two days. In some cases, it's a lot longer than that. And say so life, death, burial, resurrection. And so Christians, in a sense, are not just saying that, but enacting it and living in the light of it all the time. They say, my, my version of the circle of life, see, Mufasa and me, we disagree on this. Mufasa says, no, no, this is what happens, life, death, and then you fertilize. Whereas we say life, death, and the body is dead for a period of time, but that's not the end. And the resurrection of the body happens. Not just the escape of the soul, the literal resurrection of the body happens when Jesus returns and makes all things right. And that is a very silly sounding claim to a lot of people, but it's at the heart of what Christians believe, and it's also at the heart of what baptism is, as we'll see in a minute. So the Christian story in outline goes like this. God creates. The world is good. It's maybe not finished yet. There's a a task for humans to fulfill, but but what he's done is good, and he puts humans in it, and he says, go and fill and enjoy and subdue and rule and Just delight in this planet and make sure that you have sex and have children and fill it with life and everywhere there will be little things that look like me, little people that look just like me. And so that God's that's God's commission and humans being human beings say to a point yes, but mainly no. We're not gonna do that. We are gonna live with our agenda in control, not with yours, and as a result, lots and lots of bad things happen in the world which you don't need me to describe now. 
And so God says, I'm going to come and rescue and redeem people, but the way I'm going to do it is by calling this very, very old man and telling him and his very, very old wife that they are going to have within them a means of blessing the whole world. And I'm going to call this very unlikely looking pair of characters and say, I'm going to give you a patch of land and I'm going to give you descendants and your descendants, and one of them in particular, is going to go and bless every nation on earth. And you won't be able to travel anywhere. You won't be able to put your foot anywhere on earth in a few hundred thousand years time when your descendants, and one in particular, are not blessing and changing the world that they're part of. And that's what he says to this, this old bloke. His name is Abraham, or at the time Avram, if you like. And he's looking up at the sky, and God says, there you go. Look, stars, that's what's going to happen to your children. And they're going to bless everybody. Go. And we then spend the whole first major, sort of two-thirds of the Bible, following them around and following that family, which grows and then becomes a nation and has ups and downs, mainly downs. And at the end of that period, uh, God, then, God sends one individual as part of that huge family, that m- hundreds of thousands of them. God chooses, John, God takes one, and he says, I'm now going to cause you to give birth to God himself in human form, who's now going to come and do everything that all of these other descendants of Abraham were supposed to do and he's going to go and bless everybody and he's going to do that simply by life, death, burial, resurrection. He's going to do the human story in himself but he's going to add this resurrection chapter at the end which will change everything for everyone. And so that's what Jesus does. He he turns up, he's born and raised in Palestine and then at about 30 he starts announcing that the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the day of God's great rescue for the earth is coming. It's here. So he starts walking around and shouting it to people and teaching people about it. A lot of them are confused. And then he starts acting it out and says, look, now I'm going to speak to uh, demonic spirits or sicknesses or any other things that represent this present age, which is broken. And he begins to boot them out and say, look, here, new broom, new kings in town. Now a different way of living is here because it's the power of life is going to conquer the power of death. And he calls that the kingdom of God. And he announces it, and he demonstrates it, and he teaches people how to live in the light of it. And he tells lots of stories about it. And they're very odd, many of them. And they still puzzle people today. You know, they're awkward, subversive, cryptic, strange stories. God's rule is like a farmer sowing seed, and some people respond to it, and some people don't. And God's rule is like a loving father racing down the street to welcome his wayward son, who's told him where to go and disappeared off to a country to spend all his money. And God's rule is like yeast, which just sits there in a lump of dough, gradually changing the dough until it rises. And God's rule is like a field in which wheat and weeds are both growing together until the harvest, when someone comes along, picks it all up and says, well, that bit's wheat and that bit's weeds. So there's good and bad mixed in together. And God's rule is like a landowner who rents out his vineyard to tenants and says, you guys look after this until I come back. And then they trash the vineyard and kill his son. So he then gives the vineyard to other people who will grow it properly. And that's, Jesus, this is what Jesus does, right? For all that we sung about Jesus' death, a huge amount of what we know about Jesus is that he spent his time walking around Palestine telling stories like that and then enacting what he said he was doing by speaking to sicknesses and healing people and occasionally doing even more spectacular things like calming storms and walking on water. But he was, in a sense, then demonstrating God, the good God who made this world, is now here in human form and he is living in such a way as to right the wrongs of creation, fix the brokenness, and change the human cycle from life, death, burial to life, death, burial, resurrection, which kind of should be higher, shouldn't it? Life, death, burial, resurrection. I don't know. I'm not, I've probably got my hand gestures wrong. But he, and he, as this is all coming to a climax, 
he goes to the major city, to Jerusalem. And it all comes to a head there because he starts acting and talking as if the temple, which for them is the center of everything, and in fact for many people, even today, that temple site is still the center of a lot of things for both Jews and Muslims. And uh, he goes into the temple and he starts talking and acting as if it's going to be destroyed very soon. And people don't like that. And this life, as life always does in the end, begins to spiral down towards death. And eventually they find people who will accuse him and some mixture of some true things but mostly false things and they bring all those charges against him and they arrest him and they give him a mock trial and then they torture him and finally they execute him on the charge of wanting to lead the people astray and act as if he was a rival king. And as he's dying, strung up there, the Romans, who of course are in charge, um, have this... It's, it makes you think, it sounds a little bit like of Brian, I suppose, in many ways, kind of, or gladiator, depending on which way you look at it. They crucify people for looking like they are trying to take over the government. That's how they handle it. And they put this sign above his head saying, this is the king of the Jews, kind of in quotes. You know, this is the king of the... That, if you, you want to rule around here, this is what will happen to you. There's only one king, Caesar. And this is what happens to anybody else who thinks that they are. And so they put this plaque up above his head, and they kill him. And as he's dying, he shouts out, a number of things which are remarkable, remarkable statements or requests. He says, Father, would you forgive them because they don't know what they're doing while suffocating and his lungs filling with his own blood. And it's kind of an amazing thing to say, really. And then he shouts out this sort of cryptic cry of triumph. It's finished. It's a fascinating contrast. The last words of the Buddha, we're told, are work hard and strive to reach perfection. And the last words of Jesus before he died were, it's finished. It's a radical difference. And obviously the way this man thought, as Christians believe God in human form, the way he thought, the way he worked, the way his mind worked, and the way his life ministry worked were just so different from the way any other human has ever talked. And as a result, as he shouted out and stopped breathing and just faded, the two guys next to him are still alive. They're still straining, trying to keep themselves alive. The guy who's in charge of killing them, Roman centurion, looks up and he said, this guy must be like a son of the gods or something. This guy must... I've never seen anybody die like that. That is odd. I don't have a category for that. But anyway, business as usual. So they take him off the cross. They break the legs of the other guys because it's coming up to Saturday. And Saturday, if you know the Jews, is a holy day. So we're not going to leave them strung up there. That's unclean. So we take them all down, break the legs of these guys. They die very quickly because they can't heave themselves up anymore. And put them in a tomb. And so some guys appear and say, Jesus, we honor this man because we think he's from God. So we're going to put him in a proper tomb rather than just dump him by the wayside. And so some wealthy friends come and take him and put him in a tomb, seal it with a huge stone, everybody goes to bed. And the cycle of life continues. Mufasa, it turns out, is right. Life, death, burial. Even for God. Even for somebody who thinks they are God. Even for somebody who speaks to sicknesses and says, be healed. And even to somebody who walks on water and calms storms and everything else, even for him, the cycle of life can't change. Life, death, burial. Same old, same old. Everybody goes to bed Friday evening. And business as usual. The guys, the disciples, the followers are heartbroken. The women in particular, we know were particularly loyal to him and stayed right to the end. And they're in floods of tears as they go home to their families, husbands, children, just unable to cope with what's happened. We had thought it would be different for him, but it wasn't. It's just the same. Life, death, burial, always. And then the next morning is Saturday and they all get up and life carries on as normal. The sun rises just like it normally does. 
goes up in the sky, everybody goes about their business. It's a Saturday, so Jews don't, a lot of things they wouldn't do, but they still, you know, they would eat their meals and they spend time with their family and they play with their kids and they, you know, play a game here and there and whatever it is that they do. And then they go to bed on Saturday evening and the world is still just the same. Life, death, burial, always. And Sunday morning, 6 a.m., something like that, some of those crying women think, now the Sabbath's over, we can go and just put some spices in there so that he has some sort of honorable burial. And as they approach the tomb, it's like God, like he did at the very beginning, says, let there be lights. And there is lights. And suddenly this empty tomb, suddenly this, through the tears, they're looking and thinking, this has never, ever happened before. Suddenly it's like that cycle of humanity, the circle of life. Listen to me, Simba. Life, death, burial has been completely turned on its head and resurrection has begun. And with that, the shape of not just Christian belief, but the shape of hope for humans completely changes. Because until that point, nobody had ever said, no one, not even claimed that it was possible that somebody would undo death. It's never even been argued. No Muslims ever claimed it, or Hindu had ever claimed it, or Buddhist had ever claimed it, or atheist, or anybody had ever claimed. Not even the most speculative, out there, bearded Greek philosophers had ever thought this could happen. They would all say, the most you can hope for is that at death, the spirit bit of you floats away. And maybe has another existence free of the shackles of being in a body that gets old and dies. But nobody ever claimed, nobody, it's not even like they weren't right, it's just they didn't even think to say it. It was so stupid, the idea that after life, death, burial could come resurrection, body and soul reunited with an uber-power body which doesn't get destroyed and which lives forever. And Jesus does that right in the middle of time, and everybody from that day forward who looks to him in belief and entrusting him to live a different kind of life, as the five people you're going to hear from in a moment have done, every single one of those people says, this has happened to Jesus, and as a result, it will certainly one day happen to me. And that is the profound difference between, one of the profound differences between Christianity and everything else, and it's one of the profound differences between these five people and many of the people in Lewis or wherever else today. Because that event and the significance of the change of shape of the story, life, death, burial, resurrection, completely changes the way Christians see the whole world. So instead of fleeing death and pretending it doesn't happen, Christians see death as an enemy whose time is nearly up and as a necessary step to the ultimate hope, which is resurrection. So instead of saying, we're going to hide in escapism and therapy and blame, Christians say, you know, death is necessary, it's an enemy, but it's a necessary step to go through to get here, which is where I really want to be, which is the resurrection inheritance of a new world with Jesus when Jesus returns and makes all things right. Because Christians believe that what has happened to Jesus will happen to us and will happen to everything. And as the earliest creeds put it, you know, the earliest Christian documents sketching out, what do we actually believe? How would you describe it? And the Christians said things like, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's the hope. We spend our time looking forward for that. And that actually explains a lot. It explains the way that people are responding to ISIS in Iraq, even today, being chased through the hills and saying, we will stand. I know it's much easier to back down and say, no, to be honest, this Jesus guy isn't that big a deal. But the reason they don't and the reason they stay where they are and stand firm and have their heads chopped off if needed is because they know 
that they have the life of the world to come to look forward to. They expect the resurrection. They literally believe, I literally believe that I am going to have a resurrected, new, indestructible body united together with the me that is Andrew today and that I am going to inherit that body in the future when Jesus returns. And so does every Christian in here, including all five of these people who are getting baptised. All of which makes a bit of sense of what baptism is. And you wonder, what, where is he going with this? What has it got to do with baptism? Because that is the precise story that is being acted out in just a few minutes by all of these people. Life. They will tell you stories, I expect, of I lived a life in many ways as a rebel against God in some form. I lived a life in which certain things I did were antagonistic towards God's purposes for me. I thought that that life would bring joy and meaning, and it didn't. Or something like that. I don't know, I haven't heard them. Maybe they won't, but I suspect there will be that of some of them. Then they'll tell you a story about death. And they will say, life, I had that life. And then I experienced a kind of death, which was that my selfish old me had to die. It had to actually be, it had its head chopped off. It had to, be, had to be destroyed because it's sinful in God's sight. And it doesn't deliver on any of its promises. And with all of these people here today who are being baptized, that death has already happened. We are not drowning them, if you see what I mean. That would be a very different sort of ceremony. Uh, we don't do that because we're not trying to make them dead. We're baptizing them in recognition of the fact that they are dead. And so they they will tell you a story about life and then a story of life turning into death. And then they are going to enact the process of burial. What Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might live in new life. That's what they're doing. They're getting in this pool and they're kind of saying, this going under the water is like a burial. It's like me saying, I am dead to the old me and I want to be alive to God, so I'm going to bury it. Like as if the corpse is just coming off me and being left in the water and I rise again to new life and leave it behind. That's what a baptism is for a Christian. It's a burial ceremony of the old person. And as these five people get in there and do this, they're telling you the story. I I lived, I died, and now I'm burying the old life. And that old life has gone never to return, and now, resurrection. I rise again, I come back up again. That's the cool thing about baptism. If you're drowning people, you just put them down, and then we're just done. Um, But actually, no, in our case, we put them down, and then immediately bring them back up again to symbolize that they are alive to God, that they are raised to life, that they will themselves certainly be resurrected with Christ as an act of faith in him, and we bring them back out of the water to say, new person, new life. What has happened to Jesus is now happening to them and will certainly be inherited in full by them when he returns. And so I am getting up out of this water in anticipation of the day when both my body and the entire world will be made new by the powerful love of God. Life, death, burial, resurrection. Mufasa, it turns out, was wrong. It is the circle of life in a manner of speaking, but it's not the one you know of. And that's the Christian story, and that's the drama that all of these individuals are now going to act out in their baptism. So I'm going to hand back to Rich now. I'm just going to pray for us and pray for them, and then Rich will come and take over for the rest of the meeting. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful story, a story that many in here believe and know well. Some are hearing for the first time. Some have heard a bit and aren't sure if they believe, or maybe they don't. Father, I thank you that the Jesus story is not just a story for him, but actually what took place to him has happened to these five other people and will certainly happen to all of us who are found in Christ, all of us who declare your name and say, he's the one I want to trust and follow. I thank you for that amazing privilege of being a resurrection person. 
And I thank you so much for the work you've done in the five lives of the, these five lives that we're celebrating here today. For all the others who are watching, we thank you for the beauty of a resurrection-based gospel and a glorious message of hope to come in the future. Amen. Amen.